Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel S. Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. In 1936, anthropologist Ralph Linton said, the last thing a fish would ever notice would be water. It's difficult to see the medium that encompasses everything around you, especially when you've never known anything else. If fish were contemporary sci-fi fantasy readers, the last thing they would notice is squeakor. What is Squeakor? You're soaking in it. Squeakor is the dominant literary movement in contemporary SFF, a movement so ubiquitous it's nearly invisible. But in this episode, we are taking notice of how speculative fiction got watered down. Joining me in the fishbowl is JR of The Pot Hand. JR, where did the term Squeakor come from? I feel like I heard it from you. I have definitely said it, but I did not coin the phrase. I'm sure it's been kicking around elsewhere, but our our Halvey on the Discord came up with that, as far as I know. I th- and I think I asked Halvey, and Halvey said, oh, I heard it from somebody else. So it's been kicking around, but at the instant you hear the term squeak or you go, God, that's right. That's, that's it. That's perfect. I, you instantly recognize it, and you realize, yes. <laughs> I think so. You, you just suddenly it's suddenly figure out yes that fits that fits what this fucking thing is yeah and and we have used it <laughs> more or less as a disparaging term but i'm sure there were people who would who would gladly call themselves squee core because is not squee a good thing yeah i mean there are people who use the term squee in a positive sense unironically so i i suppose squee core wouldn't bother them so i guess it fits <laughs> so why are we taking the time to define Squeakor. Why? Why are we taking the time to coin this term and talk about it? Well, most artistic or literary movements have a name, either made up by the people involved in it or made up by people who are not involved in it and don't really like it very much and kind of started as an insult. And most eras in sci-fi fantasy have a name. We have the Golden Age. We have New Wave, Cyberpunk, New Weird, Bizarro, so on and so forth. And from what I could tell, most cyberpunks were pretty comfortable saying, yeah, I'm writing cyberpunk. There was a movement with a certain aesthetic, certain tendencies, and there was often a sort of political ideology that went along with it. Like cyberpunk tended to be anti-capitalist or at least looking at the decay of late capitalism. New wave tended to be, I guess, a little left libertarian. Golden age was very uh, conservative and very like age of imperialism, pro-imperialism, I'd say. (laughs) Not globally, but yes. And then New new Weird, of course, is, uh, you know, broadly leftist. Right. So right now, there, I think there is a dominant style and tone in speculative fiction, and I think it deserves a name. I think leaving it without a name gives us the sense that 
this is everything. This is the alpha and the omega and, and not this is a trend. Because once right. you realize, okay, this is this is part of a movement, this is a trend, this is a particular style, you start realizing it's ubiquitous and then you ask, why is this everywhere? Why isn't there room for anything else? And when you realize this is a, a movement, it means maybe there's room for a new movement to come in and push it out. It's a it's a movement that doesn't realize it's a movement or it hasn't named itself. It's a, it's right. the, it's a this is water sort of thing. Right, is, uh, which I a, find kind of interesting. Right, and and like those other movements, it does have an ideology, but nobody speaks of it. Yeah, well, not, I wouldn't say nobody. The the sad puppies and the assorted online mutants have definitely talked about it, but only in terms of condemning the the diversity push and the broadly right. liberal identitarian stuff. But that's not what we're talking about. No, we're we're kind of going to focus maybe a little bit about the politics of it, but heavily on the aesthetic of it. And personally, I feel like refusing to name your movement or admit that you're part of a movement, keeping it invisible is almost, it's insidious in a way because it makes it harder to present an alternative. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm everything. I'm the norm. Those, those other people. It's like when people say that they don't have an ideology or I don't have an accent. Exactly. Like, yes, you do. Yeah. Yes, you do. You just don't know it. Yep. <laughs> and it's always people in the dominant ideology that do that. Right. I don't have an they don't ideology. It it Absolutely they don't you do. You yes, you do. Everyone does. And that's okay. Yep. That's okay. I mean, that's normal. It's just you're even more you can't even question your own ideas when you don't understand that it's an ideology and there are alternatives. I think. Okay. Yeah. So that said, let's Talk about what is Squeecore? What are the characteristics of Squeecore? At least, well, mostly let's start with the aesthetics. Um, and tonally, Squeecore tends to be very uplifting and upbeat. It's didactic. There's almost a weird like YA-ish young adult fiction tone to it, even when it's supposed to be for adults. Uh, someone in our Discord, Kurt, pointed this out. Characters feel weirdly young. Like they always think and act and feel as though they're in their late teens or early 20s. They're mm -hmm. kind of inexperienced, naive, still very full of wonder. And you get the sense they haven't really lived a life before the story began. You could probably attribute a lot of that to, of course, to the, the YA thing that blew up in the last 20 years since Harry Potter. But there's also a lot of influence from films and a lot of influence from mainstream commercial narratives the the MCU the the Shiras and the uh, the the save the cat style three act structure screenplays that have really become the the blueprint for a lot of storytelling right they almost feel like kind of bad rpg protagonists those silent protagonists that were very popular in the 90s that don't really have personalities it's yeah, just you're yeah. the player character in, put yourself in there and I'm, I've been trying to figure out why because for me characters who are a little older who've lived a life who have maybe they have a haunted past and terrible secrets and regrets and there's something driving them toward this need to redeem themselves but it never really tells you what it is like I love that shit that's just that's the good shit yeah characters and, who've know, seen too much and are kind of haunted but you don't know what it is like oh hell yeah so yeah, absolutely. I... And the older I get, the more <laughs> I gravitate toward older protagonists as well, because I have nothing to learn mm -hmm. from a teenager, right? 
or a 57 year old HR manager who writes like a teenager and two teenagers. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's such a strange thing. I'm I'm wondering if it's because of there we have this need to eliminate or fill negative space. We need to explain everyone's motivations. We can't just let a character be the way they are. We have to have some kind of detailed flashback to the traumatic experience that made them this way. And that takes up a lot of space. So in order to avoid having to do that, we just have these kind of flat, like JRPG from the 90s protagonists that feel yeah, that are always the, uh... on the cusp of their life journey and, and they haven't lived. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's a, a sacred trope in, in sci-fi fantasy. It's always a, a convenient shorthand to have like a naive protagonist that you can explain, especially a secondary world to. Because they're just like sieves for information, right? You just have yeah. people talk at them, and that's not yeah, even but that's always not bad. always been the case. I mean, so many of Ray Bradbury's protagonists were married men. Burroughs had his druggies and his writers, and J.G. Ballard had his like, retirees in the Vermilion Sands. And there's, there's a, there was a much greater variety of characters. I feel, in, especially in the in the new wave. Oh yeah, they loved strange, broken weirdos, and it was awesome. But maybe yeah. we should talk about and. and and I'm not saying that there's anything. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. There's a time delay between our our speech. We're on the we're on opposite coast. You are in New York, and I am in Vancouver, BC. Oh, so yeah, that, that explains a lot. We're, we have a three hour time yeah. zone difference. Exactly. We're just attaching our messages to carrier pigeons and sending them back and forth. So it's not. Yeah, working I'm, very I'm well. spinning a big wheel. They got to like go a, through a Canadian tower. It's I pretty do. strict. It's got to get translated to French and back. Yeah, it's, it's illegal for me to talk happy. if not uh, half French, as it should be. <laughs> we love our French people. That's right. French Canadians. Of, of course. Who who doesn't love the French? <laughs> who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Open question. Oh, gosh. So, sorry, what were you saying? I was going to say we, we could go back and talk about, like, what is squee? If we're going to call it squee core, we have to say, what is a definition of squee? Mm -hmm. That horrible, horrible word. Right. Yeah. And I have a little, as I defined it. So what is, is the a, definition of squee? Yeah. As squee is a geek culture term for a, a sound or expression of excitement or enthusiasm. It's the opposite of feh or meh and very close kin to amazeballs and epic sauce. It represents a specific feeling, a type of mm. frisson that readers value. The tingle of relatability as a beloved character does something cool or says something epic and snarky. The essence of Squee is wish fulfillment. <laughs> Squeecore lives for the hell yeah moment, the you go girl moment, the gushy feeling of victory by proxy. It's aspirational, it's escapism, it's a dominant, and I would even say gentrified form of SFF. Can you articulate a little bit more by uh, what you mean by gentrified SFF? Well, I think as we've seen, there's been a, uh, a professionalization of the genre. As it's become more popular, there's a lot of careers being made a lot quicker and a lot of people who've seen sci-fi fantasy as an avenue to you know a, a big career a, like a hollywood level career and in some cases that's definitely panned out i mean you have george R. R. martin of course you have robert jordan you have jk rowling rowling however you pronounce this and you have these 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 big aspirational figures now in sci-fi fantasy and you know, there have always been superstar writers. That's never been a question. But specifically in sci-fi fantasy, you have literal billionaires who started as writers. And a lot of people see that as an aspirational 
an inspiration to become like that. And that's attracted mm -hmm. a lot of sharks, a lot of professional sharks. The idea of and, going into writing fiction to make money to me seems a little crazy. It's like a shark going to swim in a puddle, like in one of those like oily rainbow puddles. Like, bro, bro, you are in, what are you doing? Go home. Yeah, if you get a big enough shark, it'll it'll eat all the smaller fish. And that's definitely what we're seeing. Yeah. You said uh, there's a professionalism because there's this HR-ishness. You, you feel a lot like you're talking to a human resources person, someone from the professional middle class. You, you, when you read these, you get mm -hmm. the feeling the writers aren't working class or poor. I always get the feeling that a lot of these writers have only ever been customers and have never been the customer service representative. There's this real strong feeling of, I want to talk to the manager in in a lot of these stories. And I believe that's, that's the happy ending to Cold Calculations is basically someone goes to talk to the manager to solve the problem. <laughs> I don't know. I guess we're going to go, we're going to go talk to the manager of physics. We're yep. going to go talk to Sir Isaac Newton. I don't know. We're going to talk to the manager <laughs> of goblins and tell him to knock off all that malarkey. Yeah. I would like you to fix gravity, sir. Can you warm up Anyways, these calculations? Uh, they're very cold. They're very cold. I'm uncomfortable. Cold. Take it back. They're too cold. But I think oh, that's gosh. broadly... It's, a, it's sort of a tendency in the writers themselves, because as less people start out with the ability to make living income with writing, it sort of becomes a hobby. But at the same time, the people with all the free time are the sort of white-collar professionals who have the ability and the money to, to network and to have all the leisure time to write and to pay attention to the submission grinder and do all these things that maybe a working class person doesn't have time to do, especially now. Right. Someone working multiple jobs and, and working blue collar jobs where you don't have downtime, where in most white collar jobs, you can usually squeeze out an hour a day to write. You can yeah, usually, if you work really efficiently, you can squeeze out a little bit of time to write. If you are waiting tables, you really can't do that. You rest your feet for two seconds and your boss barks at you. You got time to lean, you got time to clean. Yeah, and of That's course, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of wonderful working class writers, but they're not really being published because they're out of the, they're out of the zone. They're out of the click. Connections, unfortunately, do play a huge role in what gets published. You see pretty frequently in, in SFF magazines. Whenever I see a story that looks kind of mediocre and I'm like, how did I get published? I look down and I always find out that according to the writer's bio, the writer is an alumna of one of the same workshops that the editors are an alumna of. And it's like, oh, yes, okay, it's, you're it's in the same club. And it's this club giving each other, publishing each other's works and giving each other awards. This is what it is. And the club costs $5,000. Yep. So if you don't have that, you, you can't get in. And, and maybe you can sneak in if you're fucking an amazing writer, but it, it's definitely an uphill battle for you in a way that it isn't for, for other people. And chances are you might have a different sensibility than, than other people are, will have. There's very much a certain type of, I don't know, socializing that's acceptable where it's like that very waspy, passive aggressive condescension is okay, but being direct and straightforward in a way that a sort of working class person might be, that a person from a non-waspy culture might be, gets you branded as unsafe and abusive. 
Like think to the yeah, time that's... that I forget what writer it was. Remember the time that one writer said that Bernie Sanders was like an abusive dad because he yells sometimes. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's, that's definitely a politically motivated attack. He's an old Jewish New Yorker. That's, that's, if you're from New York, that is how you talk. That is your inside voice is yelling. I'm like from a Puerto Rican family that, <laughs> that yelling is the normal sound. Yeah, <laughs> it is totally normal and acceptable to tell someone, hey, fuck you. And that's okay. <laughs> it's not abuse. It's just being direct. And I find it a lot more acceptable for me than, than just disgusting, dripping condescension. Yeah. How dare St. Bernard swing his finger around in an accusatory manner? How dare he? <laughs> like, he's an old New York man. That is the normal way of talking when you get excited. Ugh. And that culture of, of communication, I think, bleeds into the work, too. I find a very strong discomfort with emotion. Emotion is either dealt with in terms of, like, okay, emotions are something to manage in therapy, or we get mawkish maudlin sentimentality, or we get this glibness to it where anytime anything really interesting happens, instead of really leaning into it and the feeling, we get some kind of little Whedon-esque, like, well, that happened, kind of <laughs> quip to undercut the emotional strength of it. And I find it such a disappointment because like, no, let me feel this. Let me let me feel these feelings. If you, if you go into melodrama a little bit, that can be okay. Melodramas can be really appealing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have no problem with sentimentality. Some of the best stories are made of it. And broad, melodramatic displays of, displays of emotion and uh, sort of a uh, heightened operatic storytelling. I, I have no problem with that at all. I, I, I love it, even when it can be manipulative, which it definitely can be. But at least if I, if I sense that it's honest or if the writer tricks me into thinking that it's honest, then, you know, you get catharsis out of that. It's, it can be... It can be quite wonderful, but I, I don't feel like that's even the dominant thing now because it's too honest. It's too vulnerable. Yeah. You get it on TV sometimes with melodram melodramas. You, you get it on Riverdale even, but you know, a lot of current books are, uh, they're more snarky and reserved and uh, their tone is much more not vulnerable. I will say that. Right, which is a shame because I mean, art is a place to let your emotions go wild. Let let it let them out. It's all right. That's what art is for. Yeah, some people might call it cringe or whatever, but you know what? It it fucking rocks. You have to you have to get it's genre fiction. It's yeah. going to be cringe. You're writing about dragons. Just fucking <laughs> go for it. Absolutely, go for it. Go for it like you're doing a fucking prog rock guitar solo exactly. or something. If you like, just embrace really your inner like. It. Rhapsody, your hammerfall, your power metal. Yes, yes, absolutely. And there's an, an honesty an there that I've always loved, and that's why I love classic fantasy, and that's you know what got me into the genre in the first place. Yeah, it it feels very emotionally honest, even when it's like totally over the top. But yeah. even when it is the most, that's cringy. what's fun about it. 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 You, actually, you just get the feeling the that, that whoever's writing it is going like, yeah, something that feels metal. Yeah, it really does. Metal or one of those prog rock bands that's all about like, here's a, a concept album about a future and a dystopian cyber future in which music is illegal. Yep. And just I'm like, not going to yes. play notes. I'm going to play equilateral triangles for 20 minutes and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Oh, so good. 
So yeah, there, there's that PMCS fear of emotion. There's a lyricism, but it feels very middle brow lyricism. There are a lot of metaphors that sound cool on the surface, but fall apart when you examine them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're, we're resisting the tendency or resisting the temptation, I should say, to, to name specific works because we've read I know, it. I know. I mean, there's no reason to go in on a particular author, although the temptation is there. Some of them are fucking asking for it, but we are not going to do that. No, at least not yet. Anyway, we're we're just identifying (laughs) broader trends, I think, which is um, right. Trying, trying to put a name to the feeling really. Right. And when you, when you start feeling the trend, you start seeing this shit's everywhere. Ugh. Let's see the sense of humor. There's, it's very colloquialism. It's very snarky as you put, um, as, as you put it, it's very stuck in early 2000s epic bacon blogger humor. There's yeah. a lot of focus on sarcasm and banter as a substitute for jokes. Very online prose, cromulent douche waffle type zingers, <laughs> that kind of thing. It, it's a person who's not very funny trying to be funny. Yes, that is a, <laughs> uh, a plague. It's, it's and- bad. It's bad. You know, more than that, they really do lean on self-aware deconstructions of sci-fi fantasy tropes. Right. They, ha- they have to show off how self-aware they are by by not just subverting in the way that George R. R. Martin, say, subverted high fantasy tropes, but by, you know, I hate to use this term, but lampshading. They, they deliberately right. call back to like narratology and the tropes themselves in the story and make you aware that you're reading a story in a very in a very glib way, in a way that feels like the '90s wave of deconstruction, Scream, Buffy, and then later on Shaun of the Dead, that sort of thing. Right. And I'm not it's criticizing not enough those to just things. deconstruct I mean, something. Like, they oh, have to tell you, "See, look, I'm deconstructing it. See, see what I'm yeah. doing here. Do you get it? Do you get and it? You're just, so I, smart. You're so smart for enjoying this." But it also <laughs> has to be perceived as an attack on older work. It has to be like, oh, I'm yes. better than the old stuff. I'm commenting on that and I'm deconstructing this because I'm better. Yeah, there's a lot of generals fighting the last war. There's a lot of fighting something from 30 years ago. There's a sense that it's stuck in the past. There's a lot of treating discussions we've been having for decades like they're brilliant new ideas. Like how many stories do we have now that mention final girls? Like that Men, Women, and Chainsaw oh, yeah. book came out, what, 20, 30 years ago? Final Girl is not a new concept. The Final Girl is like, we know. We know what it is. Or Red Shirts. I mean, a book called Red Shirts won the Hugos, I think, a couple of years ago. Right. Eddie Izzard had a routine about Red Shirts in the 1990s. This yeah. is a 25-year-old Eddie Izzard routine, and we're treating mm. it like, holy shit, this blew my mind. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Galaxy Quest came out coming up on 25 years ago now. Right, it, it's been done, and, I and love they Gallic. did it great. They did. Wrong. Oh, it's hilarious! It's one of the. They already did it, and and we're we're acting like, oh wow, you you pointed out the red shirt guys always die. Like, yeah, it's a hack comedy now. Now, it's the equivalent of standing up there and writing a sci-fi book called "What's the Deal with Airline Food." But I, I think there's like a cultural rut in general, not just in sci-fi fantasy, but everywhere where we're sort yeah. of stuck in like a holding pattern of culture where we can't really invent anything new. And, you know, I'm as guilty as, as anyone of that, but there's, it's not that there's nothing new to say, but under the sort of culture and the economic conditions that we have, 
there's only so much that can be really said that's new because nothing has really changed right. culturally except to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. There's, and there's a lot of rehashing old arguments and struggles that aren't true anymore. Like I still see a lot of stories that show, have a main character being an outcast for being too geeky. It's not the eighties anymore. <laughs> Video games are mainstream. Star Wars is mainstream. It's not, no one's going to beat you up for like watching Star Wars. Because everybody yeah. watches Star Wars. No one's going to make fun of you for, for playing video games because everyone plays video. The frattiest of frat brothers play video games. Your mom probably plays video games. Everyone does. It. There's this very weird sense of a lot of these folks still think it's the 1980s and, and it is not. For better and for worse, it is not. I mean, in, in some ways we're eternally stuck in Reaganomics, but... The culture's moved on. Reganomics is probably why we're stuck in this holding pattern, because we're still in Reganomics. We are in the cyberpunk present. And so we just recycle the last 40 years of culture and vulture yeah. around what came before. But it's, it's, I would say that th there are shining cracks that show new things, but the dominant trend has been this recycling over and over. Right. I mean, it's safe. It's familiar. It makes money. I, I, people yep. gravitate to this thing because they've heard of it, even though none of these things are going to outlast the thing they're riffing on. There have been many, many response stories to the ones who walk away from Omalas. None of these stories are going to be remembered as long as Ursula Le Guin's original story. And most right. of these responses are terrible because they just take it as a surface level plot going, I'd rescue the kid and not saying like, no, it's like, it's the trolley problem. It's the, it's not a, it's not a Rubik's cube. It's, the purpose is it's a philosophical question to make you think about who you are and what your values are and who you are in society. It's not like, oh, I'll just, I'll save the kid. And also you, you will not <laughs> save the kid. You, you, you will not save the kid. I'm sorry. You're, you're not going to save the kid. So there's the stuck in the <laughs> past. There's the great influences are from TV and movies and not literature, which is a real shame because a lot of really great genre writers, you can very clearly tell like, oh, this guy read Moby Dick. Like John Langan, if you're reading The Fisherman, it's very clear that man read, read Moby Dick and that he fucking mm -hmm. loves Moby Dick. You can absolutely see it in there. And Tolkien, he read old, I think, Iceland, Icelandic sagas. Yes, Ursula Le Guin studied anthropology. There was this immense curiosity for the world and for older literature that goes in there. And there's, it's lacking. There's, there's an intense incuriosity. There's an intense refusal to look beyond a very narrow group of canonical genre works. And the only way we're going to look at it e either is for cheap, lazy references or to say, I defeated it. I, I won. I beat H.P. Lovecraft by writing a response story to him. I, I defeated in, uh, a dead person. Hooray for me. Yeah. <laughs> and because he was one of the bad dead people, I deserve to be congratulated for it. Yeah. Like, it, if, if you want to defeat H.P. Lovecraft, create something cool and exciting make and horror scarier. that makes people stop caring. Make, so, make something cool so that no one cares about Cthulhu anymore. That is how yeah. you'd fucking beat him. And you're not going to do that by just writing more Lovecraft spinoffs where you yell at the corpse. 
let's talk a little bit about ideology. We've been talking about aesthetic and talk a bit about ideology because there is an ideology to every movement and Squeak or definitely has an ideology. I think of centrist, solidly capitalist, vaguely liberalism. It's extremely liberal. It's it's neoliberal. Now, do you want to define neoliberal just because that's a term that gets thrown around a lot? Right. Well, neoliberalism was, um, I think it first dropped uh, in reference to Pinochet's regime. Neoliberalism was of the Chicago school. It was an economic policy that championed the free market in international trade as almost like a replacement for diplomacy. And it has become the dominant ideology of all of Western capitalism. It's, it's wrapped up globally. It, it defines global capitalism in a... Okay, I get it. So basically, it's like everything, the market is everything. And the market is the only way to understand the world, the only way to make action happen. And everything is meant to be put up to the market, whether it's a public yeah. good or a, a consumer object, whether whether it's our access to clean air or Funko Pops, let the market decide. Yeah, it is a, a commodification of of things that should be the commons, but more than that, it's 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 the underlying belief is that the market can lift up all ships, that international trade can raise up every nation from poverty, and enter into sort of golden age of capitalism where everybody's on an equal plane, and all all so called third world nations are now developed because of capitalism, and you know the 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 neoliberals can point to certain bar graphs of of line goes up that are good of gdp of education and literacy but of course there are massive consequences for this that uh are externalities that that we're seeing in the environment and we're seeing in in the human death toll of exploitation and we're seeing in in these undeclared sort of proxy wars over over resources and that's all neoliberal right. policy and it's this sort of this very sunny, sanded off belief that mega corporations are, they might be evil, but they can do some good. So who's to say what's good or bad, right? right. Amazon may be exploitative, but they, they get me my tendies on time and hey, it's better than being unemployed. Right. That is something I've noticed, this embrace of the corporation. I mean, a lot of these stories will have an evil corporation or an evil CEO, but they're not really all that against corporatism at all. I know, was it Clarion West had a diversity panel sponsored by Amazon? And Amazon is, I mean, it's mm -hmm. notoriously it mistreats employees and many of its employees are marginalized people. If you're a working class population, we're talking about quite a number of Black, Latinx and immigrant workers. So if you're treating your working class people like shit, by default, you are treating mm -hmm. diverse people like shit. And in the concept that it might not be a great idea to take money from this company and help whitewash their really negative image. There's no concept like maybe, maybe we shouldn't do that. I've seen so many squeak horror authors get mad about piracy. And to be fair, it can be frustrating. Like, shit, I spent, you know, I worked on this book for like three years. You won't even pay like $5 for it? Come on. But nothing about yeah. how bad Amazon treats authors and, and the way that Amazon runs its business, how bad it's really squeezed writers and how hard it's been for writers. There's little to no criticism for it, which I find 
bizarre. And I think the the most the ultimate in it is this thing that, as of recording, is very recent was the Hugo Award Worldcon ceremony being sponsored by Raytheon, astonishingly evil weapons manufacturer and. Winners going up there and talking about how their successes are a victory for marginalized people and how it's so cool <laughs> that we had so many diverse winners, which, you know, that is, I think that is a good thing, of course, more diverse yeah. winners, more women winners, that's good. But to be sponsored by Raytheon, no, <laughs> I don't think, I don't it's think so I have funny. to articulate to our yeah. listeners why that's not acceptable. My first reaction was to be disgusted and outraged, but more than that, it's funny for one, it's hilarious. And it also proves everything we've been talking about for months, if not years, about the professionalization of sci-fi fantasy, about about the sort of Just grasp the utter hollowness of it. Yeah, and this the moral the hollowness, hollowness of it. The constant equivocation and the sort of mealy-mouthed approach to to these moral compromises that they're so strident about in fiction. But they, they cannot make a moral decision in real life. They have to prevaricate right. and equivocate and, and just flip-flop back and forth about, oh, maybe Raytheon isn't so bad because they also made my microwave oven. And that, microwaves are good. Everyone likes the microwave, right, folks? Right. It's it's uh, pathetic. It's deeply, deeply you disturbing. Can't, they but... can't say outright <laughs> Raytheon is evil. They've murdered thousands of people. They have a bomb that right. has swords in it to kill children in Yemen. Like they are demons right. and you can't just say that you can't, you can't tweet it. You can't just like take, you can't even tweet it. Against, you can't even say like, while I was at the ceremony, I got kind of blindsided and got overwhelmed. But in retrospect, holy shit, that was fucked up. Yeah. Like you could just say that or like, Hey, at the time I was so overwhelmed, I couldn't say anything. But now looking back on it, like, wow, that was not appropriate. Yeah. Or if you don't know who Raytheon is, why the fuck do you consider yourself a sci-fi writer if you're not tuned into like literally anything that's happening in reality? Yeah, you honestly, know yeah, like, you, you should you know. A citizen of the world, you should, a, a, not just a you leftist. You should have the intellectual curiosity. Anyone, you should <laughs> read the news once in a while. Yeah, and maybe don't have yeah, your partner uh, work for them. I don't know. I might yeah. <laughs> look, look, she, all she wants is to make George R. R. Martin fuck off into the sun. So she well, married someone who will literally be able to do that. That's right. Oh, my God. But but yeah, as as morally compromised as they are in real life, their their stories are very black and white moral message stories. And I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with putting writing a story that's political. My stories are all political. I think everyone's stories are political in some way or another. Our politics get into what we write. But there's yep. a difference between your politics getting into what you write and versus standing on a soapbox and screaming at people and delivering a sermon, which it's not bad necessarily. Sometimes they're okay. I mean, I liked Sorry to Bother You, and that was totally a sermon. It was absolutely a sermon, but I, I enjoyed it. But there is nothing wrong with sermons in fiction. Over and over, they're they're all sermons, and they're all super blunt with really blunt symbolism, really black and white morality, clear cut villains, and they completely fail when it comes to real life villainy. And the stories feel like an Aesop's fable told to children, but I'm an adult. Yeah. 
I'm an adult. I don't, I don't need these things explained to me in quite this way. It's okay for me to see a scenario and just absorb it and not have a character deliver the message. Like at the end of a fucking GI Joe episode, you can just please, yeah. please shout the, uh, shouting the, uh, the slogan, perhaps while in labor to, uh, to make up a totally like fake scenario that never happened in a story that was <laughs> won a lot of awards. I'm not going to say nothing more about that. No, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're. I don't know. About. No one would ever do that. No one would ever. <laughs> there's also there's also an emphasis on diversity, but kind of token diversity is jammed into riffs on old works. I'm thinking of the all woman Ghostbusters remake, and these token characters have to be exemplary and good. They can't be com- complicated because then you're negatively stereotyping. Because I, but I, in my opinion, that's just sticking to model minority stereotypes, which are extremely harmful yeah. standards to apply to people. Oh, you have to be perfect because you're not white. Like, oh shit, <laughs> that's too hard. I don't don't ask me to do that. And well, about it's not enough for them to put. It is the second best Ghostbusters movie. Ooh, spicy. <laughs> That's not spicy. That's just I have bad. not seen it, so I can't really weigh in. It's not bad. But, it's not near as bad as people say, but it's not good either. It's thoroughly mid. That would fair enough. That I mean, that that is what one should expect from a Ghostbusters reboot for it to be okay. Um, but it's a great it's a great but, example of what you're saying. <laughs> it, it is sort of the the Hollywood diversity of just sort of slotting in a, a, a different identity into the same story, which can, like, to its benefit, it can recontextualize an older work if it's got a mind to comment on it. But if it doesn't, then it's just window dressing. Yeah. And I think diversity yeah, is and good. It, and it's itself. not telling I mean, a new story sure. either. I mean, obviously, <laughs> diversity is a good unto itself. If you have a story that's all white people for no reason and a story that's all people of color for no reason, the one of people of color reflects our daily reality and the experiences of more people. So that's the better story. I mean, that's, that's the equality right. of it. Right. But just slotting right. in these characters, because it's not always the writers of color creating them. There's often just like white writers oh, of behind all these things, especially in film and TV. In yeah. prose, maybe it's a little better, but uh, Hollywood is still extremely stratified and white. And you'll have this sort of... I mean, uh, it, it, it depends on the stories you're telling. Something I've found overwhelmingly by talking to other Latinx writers is that if you stick a Latinx character into a standard SFF narrative, that'll sell. But if you try to tell a story that's much more Latinx, let's say it's much more influenced by magical realism or it goes in detail about Puerto Rican culture or it's about colonization. It's about being Latinx or, or deals with being Latinx in a, in a complex way. And you're going to have a much harder time selling it. Or if you do sell it, it's not going to get as much positive buzz. It's not going to get as many positive reviews. And I've seen that overwhelmingly. I've seen white non-Latinx writers jam a, latinx token into their stories into their generic stories and do really really well and then meanwhile like i know carlo Yeager rodriguez has had, had so much fucking trouble selling how juan bobo got to nuevo york and it's a really fucking good story but it's about a puerto rican folk hero and it's about how assimilation to the united states might not really be a good thing completely yeah and he had a really hard time selling that 
because that is a really Puerto Rican story. So it's a very shallow kind of diversity. It's like eating at a Chipotle instead of going to an actual Mexican-owned restaurant. That's the kind of diversity they fucking want. Yeah. And even authors of color and people of, you know, different cultures are are pressed to fit into a Western narrative style. For instance, I yeah. read this book recently last year. It's called Hurricane Season by uh, Fernanda Melchor, and she's a, a Mexican author. And her story was, it's its about a 200-page novel. It's short-ish, but it's written in a very dense stream of consciousness style. And it's extremely dark. It's about mm. a small town and a, a woman who is reputed to be the town witch and all the horrible things that happened to her and the dramatic Ooh. politics that she gets wrapped up in with the town. It's, it's very disturbing stuff. It's not fantasy or awesome. sci-fi, although it sort of borders on almost a magical realism because it was sort of inspired by Gabriel Garcia Marquez if I'm pronouncing that right. right. And um, yeah, uh, and this sort of stream of consciousness, this very dense, poetic uh, prose style. And it was well-reviewed. I loved the book. Uh, There's wonderful, wonderful writing. But that is not the dominant style of sci-fi fantasy or, or of even lit fic, if you want to use that term. Right. And I think that limited its audience because it was not playing into the easy, easy Western assimilation or the easily consumable product that you would see in most sci-fi mm. fantasy, especially. Yeah. It, it, it's, these are stories that are congratulating you for reading them without really challenging you. They're telling you you're so special and good for reading this. And a, a major feature of Squeakor is treating the act of making or consuming Squeakor fiction as a heroic political act in and of itself. Mm-hmm. A writer I shall not name was promoting the work of a friend writer of his that I also shall not name, say, posting her story saying, this is justice. No, it's a story, dude. It's not justice. It doesn't do anything. It is a story. It You read it, and then you go on with your life. It accomplishes nothing. And you could say, like, this is a great story. I loved it. This is really cathartic. Yeah, sure, that's real. But saying, this fictional story about a spaceman, that's justice. No, the fuck it is not. Go outside do some mutual aid work, touch some fucking grass, go to a demonstration. I don't know. But writing or or reading a fictional story is not activism. It's not it's not justice. It doesn't fucking do anything. It's incredibly self-important to tell yourself yeah. that you're literally changing the world. And and there is that incredible belief in squeak horror about the power of language to change the world. And I'm not going to say that like fiction is totally worthless. Yeah. You can inspire people or, or change people's minds, yeah, but I, they really treat it as a magical incantation that can shift the material reality for good or for ill. And if you write a story that's uplifting, you're doing this fucking spell that's going to fix things. And if you write a story that's upsetting, you are committing harm against people. Like if you repurpose a transphobic joke meme in the title of your story, you have committed harm. It's like you've said, you've spoken the Arva Kedavra curse and someone's going to literally die. Yeah. It's, it's just words. It's just words. It seems to be, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if this, I'm talking about my ass, but, but it seems to be an American phenomenon. This, this, um, 
this thought over matter sort of cargo cult belief almost yeah. where you can sort of that manifest does sound about right. reality through words. Yeah, that does sound and really there, there keeping are... in, in terms of the bullshit American self-help movements of the past hundred years. Yeah, and there are certain ways in which fiction can affect the world directly. Upton Sinclair, right, with The Jungle, he published mm -hmm. that book as a novel. It was it was a novel. It wasn't a, a screed, but right. it contained screeds in it. And it just showed the working class and the meat packers who lived on this in this horrible neighborhood. And it was so popular and it 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 was originally much more of a class story like if you read it, it there's a class narrative there but people really latched on to the work conditions in in the uh in the slaughterhouses and the meatpacking and that's right. what eventually became it got into parliament it got into not parliament what's the american parliament we have a parliament congress, congress. yeah we got a congress yeah whatever. yeah it's part of why we have the fda and shit why we have like food purity laws because people exactly. were reading that book and going jesus christ yeah, and then more. There's like more human hands in my sausages. What the fuck? Yeah, and more recently, you have protesters adopting all kinds of pop culture stuff. They've used stuff from uh, Rambo, the 2004 Rambo. That was a uh, a big deal in the uh, anti-government rebels in I think it was Laos or Burma, rather. Hmm. And then more, and then you have yeah. the the Handmaid's Tale protesters and and the Squid Game protesters now, and you have. Uh, Right. You know, there are ways in which fiction can impact reality, which is great. I mean, there's no arguing that. Right. But there's a there's a, right. almost a cultic belief that that writing and reading unto itself is activism, and it is changing the world, which it is not. It's not doing that. It's not even changing anyone's right. mind, really, because it all like the um, <laughs> the squeakor the squeakor precept really is that you already agree with everything they're saying because you're also in the same clique. You're in the same economic bracket. You already agree with what they're saying. You're not going to be convinced. You don't need to be convinced. You just need to squee. Right. Right. So do you hate that, diversity, like Raquel? Why do you hate diversity? <laughs> Why do you hate diversity? Oh, gosh. It's the worst diversity. Cannot stand it. But <laughs> but so we have this, this self-importance. We have this incredible precision bluntness when it comes to giving us the moral of the story. There's a rejection of ambiguity. Motivations must be spelled out. Plot developments must happen on the page without inferences or gaps in the narrative or in the lore. There is no room for negative space. Endings tend toward the tidy and neat, even the pat. But while the moral and all that stuff has to be really, really precise, there's also a weird vagueness. Like, I've, I've noticed a lot of the time, squeakhorn writers will write three synonyms instead of picking the right word. They'll use two mm. different metaphors instead of picking which of the bet one is the best. And I notice a weird vagueness when it comes to details. Like, I remember reading one where the main character was this girl who likes reading fantasy books. And at the beginning, she's reading a fantasy book, but it doesn't tell us what the book is. 
Oh. And that's a missed opportunity because if you just gave us the title of a book, that could tell us so much about her taste, about her personality, about what she fantasizes about. There's a really, really right. good opportunity to introduce some kind of theme here. Like, I know it's cliche, but what if she's reading Alice in Wonderland? Then that kind of sets <laughs> us up for what the story might be. Well, what if she's reading Tolkien? What if she's reading? What if she's reading Outlaw of Gore? You know, these <laughs> all of these things tell us something about who she is and yeah. it's just a missed opportunity and you see that a lot like when somebody when a squeak core character eats they just eat food they eat dinner or lunch we don't know what they eat and again there's another example where we just with one little word telling us mm -hmm. the food they're eating that tells us something about them like oh yeah she had a salad like well okay she's very like health conscious maybe she's washing her weight oh she had a she had some pizza like okay that tells us maybe she's not super obsessed with her weight she had a lean cuisine okay well we know that we know a lot about someone if she ate a lean cuisine because no one who's ever eaten a lean cuisine has been happy with the way their life is going that tells us a whole <laughs> lot you know if the character is eating a lean cuisine for, for lunch, we know that their life is not the adventure that they want <laughs> it to be. And and it's such a missed opportunity to just name these little details. And I see it over and over and over again. That's interesting. There must there there seems to be a fear there of being too over over precise and over descriptive and above all they they don't want to be purple. They don't want to be accused of being purple. They don't want to be old-fashioned in the way that, uh, you know, a Lovecraft would be, unless they're parodying him mm. or someone of that, that yeah. era. Because being purple is is also a kind of being vulnerable. You want to implant an image in someone's head or many images, and you want to communicate an emotion vividly, which is what purple prose usually does. Yeah. And you don't want to do that in, in Squeakor for right. certain Emotions are things to be handled in therapy. They're not things to be shared publicly. Yeah. They're an embarrassment. They're they're for they're for lower classes. They're not for us. <laughs> uncouth. So we cannot be uncouth. So, uncouth. so we've been talking. So we can swear, but we can only say <laughs> douche waffle, fuck nozzle, fuck cromulent, fuck crustables. You right. Can't just fuck yourself. Okay. okay, so we've been talking about the characteristics of Squeakhorn. What is Squeakhorn? Let's talk about. Why is Squeakor? Why is this such a dominant force? We did talk about the economic factors that led to this, but also some of the cultural factors of why Squeakor is so popular right now. And I think it, a lot of it is yearning for safety in a world that feels unsafe and unstable. I mean, we're in year two of a global pandemic. The environment is bad. Democracy doesn't look like it's doing super good. It is very understandable to want to cling to stuff that makes you feel good about yourself and makes you feel safe. Yeah, and that's the excuse they'll use. And I think that's valid. Obviously, I'm not going to take away, like, if you want comfort fiction, it's there. It's, it's good. If it, it gets you through the day, that's awesome. But I especially think now that people are being raised almost entirely on a diet of that and that there is almost an inability to see fiction any other way except as to reassurance. It's it's like fic they yeah. believe in their hearts that fiction has one rightful purpose and that's reassurance and safety and relatability and things that are outside of that are suspicious and maybe contemptuous. Right, right. I, th I think there is also a little bit of a factor too. If you are writing, you are competing 
with a lot more things for an audience. In the old days, your your options for entertainment were like read a book, play that game where you chase a hoop with a stick, or mm. like see a vaudeville show. And today you're competing with so many other things. So we're trying to appeal more and more to a narrower group of readers. And I feel yeah. like we might have gone leaned into that too hard. There, there's this core group of fandom, extremely online readers, and we're just trying to write or, or edit magazines specifically for them in, in a way that's similar to what gun companies do. They Not as many people own guns anymore. So instead of trying to sell a gun to lots of different people, they're trying to sell lots of guns to a small handful of really weird, paranoid gun people. And it kind of feels like the industry is doing that, especially when it comes to magazines. I mean, who reads short sci-fi magazine, short fiction sci-fi magazines? Mainly just people who write short sci-fi and want yeah, either are published or want to get published. It's a tiny I audience. So I understand wanting to appeal to your core audience, but I do think that we might be missing out on an opportunity to appeal to a broader audience that isn't reading it yet, but if, you know, the right story gets in front of them, they might go like, oh, wow, that's interesting. I have seen that happen. I noticed when Isabel Falls' helicopter story came out, it got a really big response from non-sci-fi fantasy people. Right. People who don't usually read sci-fi fantasy read it and they said, this is really cool. This is the most interesting sci-fi story I've read in years. Yeah, and it's hard to argue with that. I mean, even in, even if you do read them all the time, I mean, that's a brilliant story. Yeah, it, it at least it sure it sure stands out compared to what's usually but what's usually getting published. Fantasy, I mean, uh, the online sort of uh, controversy it, it generally benefits like short fiction. In recent memory, you have uh, Cat Person, that New York story. I think it was oh, New York yeah. anyway. Felt like it. I think it was and the New Yorker. Uh, yeah, Tony Tony Tillamuthes, um, the feminist. That really oh good uh, yeah, Intel that one. one. Um, that extremely are, dark one. Yeah, I love that story. I love it, yeah. And uh, those are sort of examples of short fiction that have pushed outside of the bounds of people who read short fiction. It reached people who just read blogs or news articles. I thought that was really healthy and really wonderful just to have short fiction discussed in the mainstream Right. Controversially, people, people arguing over it, people trying to find meaning and symbolism and breaking it down, bringing their own critical faculties to it. You do not see that. That is no. just not something that happens, And but it did happen, and that's wonderful to see. So I guess the question oh, of so these cool. people, the, the Squeakor people, is how how do you get outside of this cult of this, this, this diminishing audience? Because they're playing the hits, right? They're, they're reassuring their own readers, and they're not really growing right. readership. It is very much a circle jerk, I think. Yep. And one that narrows yep. and narrows and narrows. A work people. circle I jerk. Get sick of it. <laughs> it's one of those work meetings. Yeah. We've all had them. Yeah. It, I did have a little thing that I blurted out. Apology if it, if it yeah, seems like a, a thought fart. Because it is. It is. Who is writing Squeakor? Finley Dunn said in 1902 that the duty of newspapers was to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Latter-day Mexican writer Cesar A. Cruz revived the phrase as art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. It's a quote I've seen countless times, and it's one of those epigrams that we can all basically agree on while arguing about the particulars. 
So who in this scenario are the comfortable and who are the disturbed? Contemporary sci-fi fantasy seems largely a case of the comfortable writing to comfort the other comfortable. Those who, those who aren't professional authors largely have professional jobs, stability. There are a disproportionate number of white-collar government, nonprofit, corporate, academic bureaucrats writing these stories, people in law and in academia, and they're mostly read by peers in similar fields. The sci-fi short story market in particular is vanishingly, vanishingly small and rarefied this way, and you absolutely see this professionalization reflected in the awards, the conventions, the workshops, and the work itself. It's an economic click and a click of bourgeois manners. Yeah, Applaud. it absolutely does feel that. <laughs> that was hard to read. It, no, it was good. It was good. I, I think it's a very good soliloquy. But yeah... I agree. I don't have much to add, but yes, I guess I'd say this and then post a, an animated gif of a guy named Chris pointing upward. I forget which Chris it is. <laughs> or downward. That's the two options you have for Chris. Up or downward. He's going to point in some direction. And, and, and I can understand on one hand why economically you might do that because there is an incentive to go over this tight, the shrinking market, but I feel like we're missing an, uh, an opportunity and a lot of potential to reach people who aren't in it. And and for me, I've given up on appealing to the the popular <laughs> clique in sci-fi. They they are not gonna like what I have yeah, to say. I mean, I have been a but, dick but, online for so long and so stridently that they all have me blocked anyway, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't but, read my bullshit either. But when you see something of yours reach an audience outside of that. It's so refreshing and so exciting and so cool. And you see the squeak horror writers ignoring that potential. Like, yeah. Or they're well, mad at it, which of course we've they're, seen. They're many. mad at it. They pretend it doesn't exist. They get angry or they, uh, as tour.com's blog did write a really watered down version of it without attributing oh, yeah. it's me several months later. Okay, guys. Um, <laughs> But instead of seizing on an opportunity, instead of seizing on an opportunity, they they ignore it, which I find very disturbing. Like, I know I'm going to sound like an egomaniac, but when everyone is beautiful, no one is horny got really big. I was, it got such a massive response and I was blown away and really happy. But I've also been blown away by how much sci-fi fantasy has stridently avoided talking about it. Which is, it seems very weird. This is a huge thing in discourse and it's very geeky. It's about superheroes and it's about sex, yeah. which is, I mean, these people write so much slash fiction. They, I mean, they're obsessed with Batman's penis should. and here's an article all about it. You won't, there's a refusal to talk about it. And it's like, if, if I were an editor of say like a tour blog or an SFF magazine that ran editorials and somebody wrote an article that got translated into like five different languages and was referred to in newspapers all over the fucking world about NPR. something in, in geek culture. I'd be like, I want to talk to that writer. I want that writer. This writer is able to appeal to a lot of fucking people. This writer has something mm -hmm. interesting to say. And to be fair, one of the editors of Fangoria did reach out to me because horror is the superior genre. No one from it's SFF true. did. It's true, folks. Horror is best. No argument. Horror, horror, horror is, is the goat. Best by far. And it's like, because I was, I am not in this clique. That's it. They'd rather, they're willing to pass up an opportunity to re reach a broader audience and say something that really excites people. They'll just, they'll just 
pass that up because I didn't go to Clarion and I am not in the same fandoms and that's it. And it's like, yep. what it's a waste. Like, that's all it is. It's your, it there's is. an in-group and, and an out-group. And, yeah. <laughs> and they will defend themselves by saying, oh, you have to pay your dues as, you know, to get into the club. You have to, to scrape and simper right. and be a, a courtier like Wuk Chendig, I'm going to say. A guy we do not know and do not talk about. No, never. But you get on uh, you get on Twitter or social media, you get the blue check, you you flatter and mm-hmm. you simper and you simp for years and you you just sort of increase You look the other yourself. way while your friends at conventions sexually harass and assault women. That's right. You act really surprised when they get caught, you know. You pay yeah. your dues. That's what you do. Pay your dues. Be a bro yeah. or a sis or whatever. And you that's are. how you become a successful male feminist. By ignoring it when your friends harass women. Okay, but we're getting off topic. Um, gosh, we were talking about clicks and why is Squeakor... A, a male feminist. We, we talked about why is Squeakor... Now let's talk about what's wrong with Squeakor. Why are we being so mean to Squeakor? You, have, you wrote down a really cool bit that says, maybe someone's asking, so what? Is aspirational bad now? Okay, yeah, I'll, I could read that out. Because uh, it. It, it was a brief note that became a paragraph, and I apologize in advance. It's good. Read it. Read it. So maybe someone's asking, so what? Is aspirational bad now? And that's the kind of reductive defensive question you'd naturally ask if, if you believed that aspirational was the only purpose of fiction. The instinct to get defensive about the question means you probably attach a lot of value to that aspirational feeling, that frisson, that nebulous sense of hope. This allows for a lot of great storytelling, yes. But what it disallows is just as interesting. It disallows tragedy and disappointment. It disallows losers, fuck-ups, failures, fools, clowns, edgelords, liars, and perverts, and freaks, and criminals, and yes, depraved monsters that you'd never want to be within 100 miles of. Squeakor disallows the unhappy ending, the disappointment, the rawness, the hopelessness, the truth that sometimes you never get what you want, and the discomforting possibility that maybe you don't deserve it. It disallows waste and relapse and pointlessness. In short... It disallows a huge spectrum of the human experience. Nice. I I do think that's an amazing point. And honestly, if you're concerned about diversity, if you're concerned about marginalized voices, you can't fucking gentrify, okay? If you push out the people who are kind of strange and different and people who make you uncomfortable, you're going to be pushing out a hell of a lot of marginalized people. Just think about what happens to a neighborhood when you gentrify it. You end up making the neighborhood incredibly fucking white, don't you? Every single time. So if you're actually interested in the true spectrum of experience of marginalized people's lives, yeah, there's going to be parts of it that make you very uncomfortable. And there's going to be parts of it that have sad endings or are weird or too raw or too horny. And if you chase that away, you don't have real diversity mm-hmm. in your art. Not not really. You have tokenism. You don't have diversity. Yeah. And I, I don't use the, the word gentrification lightly. It's not just cultural. It is an economic thing specifically. Right. Because as, you know, as sci-fi fantasy gets more professionalized and it, it attracts a certain type of professional, a cynical marketing shark who can write to order for the market – uh, you will see a lot more of these people, and they're out there. I mean, you, I'm not going to name them, but you know who they are if you're listening to this. Yeah, you can see a story and go, "That's Hugo Bait. That Hugo it, Bait. it hits the checklist. This it's is like Hugo are, Bait. This is professional trademark author trademark. 
This is what their voice sounds like. This is how they operate. And it's very cynical. Yep. Absolutely. And it's and it's gross and it works so well. That's what bugs me seeing it. That's like, yeah. man, how is anyone being fooled by this bullshit? Oh, God. Anyway. So we're mean to squeak her because it pushes out people. It pushes out the full spectrum of human experience. It pushes out everything that's not Squeakhorn. It's it's not enough for Squeakhorn to say like we don't like gross things. Squeakhorn has to say these other things are immoral and harmful. And mm-hmm. we did a full episode on this, but in my opinion, calling art harmful is not all that different from calling art degenerate, which yep. is a really really evil concept. The idea that art is degenerate and we must be protected from it. I, I find that deeply disturbing, and that concept always ends up hurting queer artists more than anybody else. They're always the ones who oh, get labeled yeah. degenerate fastest. And I, I you could blame economics partially maybe in that museum. Jewish artists, yeah. you know, black artists, jazz, Weimar cabaret, oh, which yeah. was heavily, heavily queer. Uh, all that stuff was just labeled degenerate because it did not toe the line of Aryan German morality. And while we don't have Aryan German morality, we definitely have bourgeois morality. We definitely have American Protestant morality. Yep. There, there, it, there is very much a waspiness to it, I think. Yes. <laughs> to squeak or uh, almost a Calvinism in that some people are good and some people are bad and that's that. And yep. it, it, it doesn't even leave for the idea of redemption and forgiveness even. It, it's not even Catholic. It's, it's Protestant. Protestant art fucking sucks. <laughs> as fucked up as the Catholic it's Church is, it's a good aesthetic. Catholic art rocks. I, I have to admit, terrible yeah, church, really cool art, really. Yeah, pe- people 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 got mad at Anne Rice for converting to a Catholicism for the aesthetic. No, I totally understand. She's a vampire queen. Like That's Catholicism is a very good vampire aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, so so it's not enough for it to exist, but it has to push everything else out and morally condemn it. And you can't just blame the market for it. I know there are people who want this and people like it, but. People like other stuff too. There's a hunger for darker or edgier or more interesting stories. Like in fantasy, A Song of Ice and Fire, a really fucking grim, brutal series is immensely popular. Or Squid Game. I mean, that mm-hmm. that was the top TV show. Everybody loves Squid Game. It was this massive international hit. But within that was out of the as well. Out of nowhere, no one expected fucking Squid Game to get big, but it did. So, but in short SFF, in short sci-fi fantasy, those who write it get frozen out by the influencer click, or you straight up get harassed out of the industry, like Isabel Fall did. And and it's bleak. It's not just bleak for writers, but it's it's shitty for readers too, because there is a hunger for these kind of stories, and chasing everybody away is a rotten thing to do. Now, I was thinking. Maybe we should skip the examples of Squeakor because people are going to be mad at me. And I, well, I don't know. Let's give a couple of examples. Mad. Let's give a couple examples of Squeakor. I kind of think the Goblin you. Emperor, the Goblin Emperor, <laughs> I think qualifies. Our, our friend Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez wrote a very, very good review of it in Blood Knife. Um, Chuck Wendig, just fucking Chuck Wendig. Everything he's written, he is a, a massive squeakhorn writer. Joss Whedon and his many imitators. Pretty much, I'm going to say everybody on this past year's Hugo Award short fiction slate, except the helicopter story, kind of falls into squeakhorn to me. Of the ones I've read, yes, but I can't speak for all of them. 
So let's talk about some contemporary exceptions to squeak horns. We've been kind of negative this episode, so let's shine a let's light a candle in the darkness and talk about some contemporary short SFF writers who we think are fucking awesome. I will start with Abby Mayotis. We did a book club episode on her collection alien virus love disaster stories she's really good she's really like gritty and and dark and funny and melancholy her stories rock uh ted chang i mean you, you if you're listening to this you know who ted chang is but read some fucking ted chang ted chang rocks he's amazing is uh, exhaustively well researched he writes like one short story a year but it's always this perfect jewel just an amazing, flawless story that just blows your fucking mind. Carmen Maria Machado, of course, she's she's brilliant, and uh, she's no longer on book Twitter because she got sick of everybody's bullshit. Good for her. You are free. <laughs> you are free, Carmen Maria Machado. I'm so proud of you. How about you? Some some recommendations from you? Well, I read a lot of grim, dark fantasy, which I'm not going to get super into because that's sort of its own thing. But I'm going to say Gretchen Felkemartin, of course. I love her work. I've been following Hell her yeah. for ages. Continual inspiration. Glad to see her meteoric success of late. Peter Watts. Yeah, she's doing uh, great right now. Yep. More stuff in the Isabel Fall sort of vein, the dark sci-fi. But I, I do love grim, dark fantasy. And that's sort of like uh, recent reads, The Poppy War by R.F. Kwong. If I'm pronouncing that right, don't yell at me like George R. R. Martin, please. I don't know how to pronounce everything. Yeah. Um, Cancelled. <laughs> put that sound effect. JR, fuck off into the sun. <laughs> I have fucked off into the sun. Deep apologies. You're a Canadian, though, so you should be really good at apologies. I've been apologizing all my life, and I will never stop, and I will always respect my enemies. <laughs> Let's see. Other short story writers. Uh, Porpentine. She's amazing. She does super weird trans body horror it, it it rocks she's really really cool someone to check out and our wonderful friends who've been appearing on on our right good as guests we've got carlo jaeger rodriguez we've got the lovely and terribly underappreciated june martin i do not understand why her stories don't sell better than they do because they're fucking amazing she is the world's greatest yeah, if, writer if you're an agent I don't get it. you better you better buy accelerate you better. Yeah, someone buy Accelerate. It's really good, probably. I haven't read it, but I assume it's good because June wrote it. And no, June it's good. And it's, it whips. It's good. Nice. Oh, gosh. Let's see. And uh, yeah, I, uh, all the Right Good crew and the Blood Knife crew. I've never been so inspired to write again as in the last year meeting all of you folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The. I, I'm not going to lie, if I hadn't been able to put together this Discord with Blood Knife and write good people, I probably would have dropped out of writing just because the community, the mainstream of the community is so fucking shitty. And it's like, no, yeah. I found I found a group of gross weirdos to hang out with. This is perfect. <laughs> we keep each other going. That's, that's the water. They like Maybe they see the water and they don't want to say it's water because they want to be the default. They want to they want to be the no alternative. Right. But there is an and, alternative. I'm, and I'm hoping one thing I've been hoping to do and trying to do is to create something of an alternative and say there there's other ponds you can swim in. Yep. <laughs> and they're bigger there's and better. better. There's there's better water. There there's less with less sharks in it. Anyway, yeah. All right. So we have been talking for an hour and 20 minutes according to my watch. So why don't we wind it down because there's a long long 
episode. Where can our guests find your work and support you? Well, as of now, I run, not run, I'm the co-host of The Pod Hand, which is a a podcast about mainly Berserk by Kentaro Mira, but also other grim, dark, and horror topics that are hopefully of interest to Berserk readers and people of anyone who's interested in dark media fiction. And nice. I also look for my fantasy novel in the future. <laughs> That's all I can say about Someday. that. Well, that is all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Unlike some speculative fiction communities, Right Good is not sponsored by Raytheon. We rely only on our gorgeous <laughs> listeners. So if you like what you heard, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash writegood. Subscribers get bonus content and access to the Discord, a writing community that is gloriously squee-free. Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by Surgery Head. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs> <laughs>